Welcome to the Vax Up Podcast, a podcast that shines light on health organizations, large and small, who use social technologies to get accurate vaccine information to their communities. This show is brought to you by the Bay Area Global Health Alliance and the Sabin Vaccine Institute, both members of the Alliance to Advance Health Online. Vax Up is produced by the team behind a Shot in the Arm podcast. And now here's our host, global health strategist and advocate, Ben Plumley. And let me add my welcome. I'm Ben Plumley. This is the Vax Up podcast, where we look at how organizations, big and small from all over the world, use social technologies to help inform and educate their communities about innovations in healthcare, particularly vaccines. In each episode, we will follow a different community health outreach organization and see how it has got the message out. A team of experts joins me to reflect on the challenges that the organization faces and how they have sought to address them with lessons for other organizations around the world. And in this week's episode, we are joined by Heidi Larson, the founding director of the Vaccine Confidence Project and author of the recently published book Stuck, How Vaccine Rumors Start and Why They Don't Go Away. Also in our virtual studio is Jen Seiler, Director of Global Community Engagement at the Sabin Vaccine Institute. She heads up the Boost Community, a group of vaccination implementers around the world who share lessons learned on how to reach populations more effectively. And we are also joined by Dr. George Woods, who is a board member of the local Oakland, California Community Health Outreach Project we are meeting today, CalPEP. George is a forensic psychiatrist, and he's a member of the Stanford Medicine and Sutter Health Collaborative Cancer Care Consortium. Well, let's get right to it. Heidi, can I start with you? We're all members of the Alliance to Advance Health Online. What's the objective of the Alliance? What are our goals here? Well, I think we hear a disproportionate uh, amount in the media and particularly in the media, but also even in social media about all the bad things, uh, the, the misinformation, disinformation. And actually we're really under under representing the, the incredible innovation and creativity that's gone on uh, in communities and, and even globally in trying to not just educate, but engage. Um, it's been also an organizational tool that has helped reach people, particularly complicated in times of COVID when you can't interact in person. Now, the Alliance is bringing out a number of RFPs. It's been looking to work with organizations that use social technologies to improve health, but particularly how they monitor the impact of their work. It's not enough to post a message. It's who it reaches and how do they change behavior as a result. Do you think this is going to bring through some interesting new science and data about how we can learn as we go? Absolutely. I, we've just um, awarded in, in the Alliance 33 new grantees, um, which is fantastic. And it, it's really about scientific innovation. And as you said, from the listening, from the understanding to the uh, engaging and educating and then measuring the impact of it. Um, but that's going to need new science in it because it's a brand new um, medium in, in the scheme of things. Sometimes we forget that, you know, some of these social media platforms only open their doors 2006, 2007, 2008. It's not that long ago. So we're still learning. 
um, all the opportunities. So it's a very exciting time with the Alliance, and it's not a minute too soon. George, let me come to you, because this isn't just about information campaigns, public information campaigns. The use of technology is blended across the individual client uh, counselling sessions to the broader community information and engagement. You've been at the heart of that. How has that, uh, that blending, that blurring worked? Ben, I think the um, blending has been difficult at first. Um, I think that in many ways, um, the pandemic has been a millennial pandemic. Um, it really has been this combination of social media for the first time tackling public health in a meaningful and absolutely necessary way. So I think we've had to really um, put away many of our ideas about what social media's value was. Uh, the points you made earlier in terms of emotional intelligence, although very true, uh, I think we're, we're at a point now, a year, 18 months in, where we're learning how to put our arms around someone emotionally, even though it may be through Zoom. Uh, and, and that can be done. Um, it's really a function of putting your heart into the conversation. Jen, does this resonate with you? Are you seeing this um, in the comments and suggestions coming from your Boost community? And could you tell us a little bit about Boost and the countries that it represents? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Ben. Um, so the Boost community itself, just to give you an idea, is just over 1,750 immunization professionals worldwide in 130 countries, predominantly low and middle income countries. Um, and we at Boost really focus on um, peer-to-peer -peer connection opportunities, particularly for subnational staff. So we include both national and subnational. But when we're looking, when you're thinking about vaccine acceptance and demand in particular, the more local you get, the, the better it is. So really trying to support folks at the subnational level as well with what we call foundational capacity building. So adaptive leadership, community building, advocacy. And we really think, you know, I think the the vaccine, what we're seeing is that vaccine acceptance and demand, we've had 120 live events over the last, I guess, 20 months or so. And vaccine acceptance and demand challenges are the number one topic that come out of these kind of more foundational conversations around leadership or management. And we see that constructing a conversation around something more broad where you the capacity that you're looking at um, is around community building or adaptive leadership is important because it brings out those challenges that are complex and don't have tactical, technical, just go do this, right? A lot of the immunization space is quite, um, you know, it, it's, it's pretty black and white. And so this being gray space, we're trying to help create the space so folks can can really learn from one another um, through, through our network. Um, and really think that I think social media is something that's used widely across all of our communities. Um, we ourselves not only use boostcommunity.org, but we have um, Telegram channels and WhatsApp um, groups that we use every single day and people are really active on there. And so the idea that you can get very local and support folks um, in being able to use these tools more smartly is, is pretty exciting. Well, our profile in this episode uh, is the Oakland-based CalPEP 
California Prevention Education Project, one of the US's top HIV community outreach organization that's really set the bar when it comes to identifying and working with at-risk communities in the African-American, Latino and homeless populations in the East Bay. But how is it done taking and having to turn on a button in the age of COVID? Let's take a look. What's up, everybody? I'm at work, and as you can see, we out here doing our thing. So our main reason on coming live right now is to tell you guys that there's no excuse. It's better to have the vaccination than to not have it. Can't tell nobody what to do because everybody grown. You know what I'm saying? But the way that Delta is, is moving through the community, of course, it's moving through the African-American brown people community real fast. That's Don Skelton, case manager at California Prevention and Education Project, or CalPEP, in Oakland, California, USA, on what looks like a warm summer day in the Bay Area. She's broadcasting from her cell phone on Facebook Live at a free COVID vaccination site, inviting folks from the community to come on down. We got the Moderna vaccination, and there's also the Johnson & Johnson. So if you only want to do the one shot, you can do that. Um, so where are we, you ask, you ask? We are on 71st and International. If you have not been vaccinated, uh, you know, I implore you to come home. CalPEP began serving marginalized populations in Oakland and Alameda County in 1984, a trailblazing organization whose early efforts in HIV prevention and street outreach for the area's hard-to-reach African-American and Latino communities is internationally recognized. Since then, programs have expanded to address homelessness, food insecurity, and financial assistance, just to name a few. And CalPEP's service area has also spread to neighboring cities and counties, an expansion that Executive Director Lisa Ryan says came out of necessity. If you've driven through Oakland, you've seen a great change. The gentrification has been profound. And clients are feeling unwelcome and they're being pushed out. And wherever they go, we're going to go with them. Today, a major initiative at CalPEP, its COVID response program aimed at educating and protecting vulnerable clients during the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Philip Bell. I live in Oakland, California. I've been a client of CalPEP for five years. Philip, who works in hospitality, says his life was turned upside down by COVID. As soon as the pandemic hit, um, they immediately laid all of us off. I fell behind on my um, rental payments. It also impacted the way that I went outside and ran errands and exercised and normal daily activities. Trying to access different services was a challenge also. Um, yeah, it was just a whole big mess. Those services included ones he was getting from CalPEP which were one-on-one, face-to-face interactions, or on-site group meetings. But new pandemic safety restrictions made it tough to deliver those services in the same way. And it was a critical time when the communities CalPEP works in were figuring high among skyrocketing COVID infection rates. We're definitely paying attention to the way that the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted Black and Brown community members in Alameda County. We've seen the death rates and testing rates exponentially increase uh, month to month and week to week. Raina Perez, 
who leads CalPEP's COVID response program, says it's a priority for the team to promote the vaccines among their clients. According to data from Alameda, Contra Costa, and San Francisco counties, more than 111,000 positive COVID cases and nearly 1,000 deaths have been reported in the Black and Latino communities combined. But as of mid-September 2021, Alameda County reports only about 61% of Latinos and less than 57% of Blacks in the county have been fully vaccinated, placing them behind other ethnic groups in the county for vaccine uptake. Data from Contra Costa and San Francisco counties show a similar trend. So what's preventing more Latinos and Blacks in the region's hardest-hit areas from getting the shot? Some people would say that it's poison or that it's the mark of the beast. I don't want to put this unknown poison in my system or the vaccine doesn't work. Yeah, all interesting and different kind of theories. Phillips says the hesitancy he's encountered from others in the community, as well as his own, is rooted in a long history of distrust. You know, it's this old saying that, you know, you can never trust the government. And a lot of people are still, you know, kind of stuck in that rut of, you know, not trusting the government, not trusting the media and the police and all the other high authority figures. Don Skelton, the CalPEP case manager, says that distrust extends to medical providers, pointing out that her clients generally avoid non-urgent doctor visits. Because the way, you know, we have been treated <laughs> in the medical establishments and, and, and how they get treated when they go in there, they just don't go. Their, their primary care doctor is the emergency room, you know? If it's really important, then okay, let's go to the emergency room. But they don't have primary care doctors, just don't trust it. Especially vaccinations and flu shots, and <laughs> they're, not, they're not messing with it. So, George, so it's not just vaccines that people are skeptical of, but the entire medical and scientific communities, and there's a history behind that. Could you talk a bit about that, particularly for our viewers and listeners from around the world? I, I first have to come back from that amazing piece. Um, I tell you, it just, it took my heart away. Um, and um, to hear what I hear every day, um, not only in formal conversations, but walking the lake here in Oakland, where I'm just, and I'm hearing conversations from people that are just going by, the, the lack of trust, the uh, inability to really get deep enough into the objectivity to understand what's going on. Uh, it's miles deep and generations wide. And I think that's really the greatest difficulty that we have is that initially we as medical providers thought we could come at this scientifically. And we realized very quickly we could not come at it scientifically because they didn't trust us nor the science. And Heidi, vaccine hesitancy, vaccine competence, vaccine acceptance, none of this is really new with COVID. You've been following attitudes towards vaccines in particular for, for many years. Can you tell us a bit about its story and and how long hesitancy has been part of a community's response to new health technologies? 
Well, it started with the first vaccine, to be honest, in the 1800s. I mean, the smallpox vaccine. Um, actually, to be honest, it wasn't about the vaccine specifically, which is one of the biggest learnings that I have um, had in the last couple decades of my work in this area. Um, it was that the first anti-vaccine league was actually the anti-compulsory vaccine league. And, and one of the strongest themes from day one has been this sense that, you know, you do this because we told you. And that's just not holding any water right now. It, but it hasn't from the beginning. And it was really, um, you know, it was in the smallpox, uh, the conscientious objector clause that the UK, and this was in the UK, uh, they, they allowed a conscientious objector clause. And that calmed the riots in the street. I, I always thought it was related to the Vietnam War. Uh-uh. It goes way back to the smallpox vaccines. Um, and I think that's something we should remember as we throw on lots of mandates right now. Um, we've done some research on mandates, and it's great for people who want vaccines because they think everybody else should do it because I did it. But for people who are hesitant or particularly distrustful, you throw on a mandate, they said, if you tell me I have to do it, I'm definitely not doing it. So, you know, we see that ultimately these mandates work uh, in terms of bigger numbers, but we risk kind of uh, further polarizing people. So these, these issues go way back. Trust is absolutely fundamental. That's why when I founded the Vaccine Confidence Project, confidence is fundamental. And I think we sometimes spend too much time on you know, fixing the misinformation. And we're not dealing with all that underlying stuff is why people believe it. And they believe it because they don't trust it, not because it's the wrong piece of misinformation, wrong piece of information necessarily. I'm not saying we shouldn't correct uh, misinformation, but that's not going to fix this, this issue. Um, and social media by itself is not going to fix it either if we don't get government institutions to become trustworthy. But in the meanwhile, we can certainly help help uh, alleviate some of that, that distrust. Um, I love that, Heidi. Vaccines work for people who want them. Um, Jen, you heard CalPEP's struggle. It's tough for AIDS organisations to turn on a pivot and have to suddenly transform from one-on-one -on -one in-person outreach sessions to using new technologies and working in different ways. Is that something that members of the Sabin's Boost communities have experienced too? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if I can just make a quick comment to respond to what Heidi just said as well. Um, there's this, you know, there's an example that I recently heard a, um, a healthcare worker who's in our Boost community who shared that the day that she went to go get her vaccine um, in the last four or five months, she got 40 different messages from <laughs> other friends, nurses, doctors to say, don't do it. Because there is a sense of also like, I care about you. So the, the, the messaging for them was also, you know, they, but this, this, this sense of, yeah, you, you absolutely, you know, it's compulsory. Um, I think really did, you know, but there was no sensitization around a lot of like, oh, healthcare workers just must get it now. And so um, I think it is a really delicate balance. Um, so I just wanted to mention that because we're, we're seeing that a lot too. Um, 
and folks are asking us, how do we, how do we help work through this? Um, yeah, when we launched our Boost community formerly, the International Association of Immunization Managers, which had been around for about eight years, um, when we launched Boost, which was kind of this, this you know, uh, relaunch of IEAM, but intending to have a virtual aspect to it, but still very much intending to have in-person work, we were nervous. Um, and it has been a it has been a big transition, and for a lot of our partners on the ground, um, it's you know the biggest challenge too is a lot of supervisors at all different levels are saying, how do I support my employees when I can't see them? Um, hmm. And so you know there there's a lot of disconnects that have to be reconnected, and so it's also been on a on a global level and a local level figuring out how do you capacitate folks to support each other to feel like you have the tools to help your, your yourself, but also the tools to help your staff. Um, and so it's it's been really complicated and hard, but I, I do think on, you know, I've been so impressed at how much folks have shown up and adapted to figure out how to make it work um, and how to get creative and work with one another. I think one piece I'll also mention is we, we trust just keep, comes up in every single conversation, right? And when you think about trust, in order to gain trust of also communities or even, you know, within our boost community to talk about what vaccine acceptance and demand looks like, you need, folks need to be vulnerable and feel like they're in a safe space. And I think that can be even more difficult to try to facilitate when you're, when you're sitting, you know, remote wherever you are, right? And um, it, it, it takes time. Yeah, absolutely, Jen. Well, let's go to CalPEP. Let's go and see how they're trying to address and reach a solution. Misinformation about the coronavirus, public safety restrictions impeding delivery of in-person services, and a deep-rooted skepticism around vaccines and healthcare, all gigantic obstacles to tackle for a grassroots, bootstrapped organization like CalPEP. Like so many other organizations, program manager Raina Perez says the CalPEP team shifted their efforts online using technology like Facebook, Google, WhatsApp, and Zoom to help them connect with clients. We began hosting a more uh, deeper program on the COVID-19 response team in October, where we started providing specific education to community members around COVID-19 prevention. That has definitely expounded over the last several months as we're now focusing primarily on vaccination information. As with any new initiative that requires new skills, there was a learning curve. Case manager Don Skelton says that at first, it was a struggle. The biggest challenge is like a lot of what I'm supposed to be doing with my clients, it has to be done over Zoom. So the challenge that I'm having with that is the curriculum is set up for, uh, for people to be around each other. And another challenge with that is people didn't know how to um, get Zoom. The challenge has been teaching people how to do it because they have no idea. Social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram also became part of CalPEP's pandemic outreach toolbox. I've definitely seen case managers use Facebook and Instagram to private message their clients. And one of those reasons is because with our clients, although their phone number may change, they may still be able to log into their social media accounts as, you know, their phones change and or they get lost. Dawn kicked her outreach work up a notch by broadcasting on Facebook Live 
inviting the community to come see her at free vaccination sites and offering incentives, too. Come on down, come get your vaccination and uh, get you something to eat. Put a few dollars in your pocket, get a gift card and just be happy about knowing your status and, and, and happy about protecting yourself. and protect. You know, get the vaccination is not just only for you. It's for your neighbors, it's for your kids, it's, it's, it's for your friends. So I, I did mine, and I hope that you guys come down and, and do yours. She says that while going live on Facebook isn't a requirement for her job, she likes doing it, and it's helping. I want to let them know. Maybe one day they've been like, you know what, let me go to where she's at. A couple of my friends have came. So that right there is, is a winner for me because somebody came from my, my postings. Client Philip says CalPEP's Zoom meetings and Facebook posts on COVID and the vaccines helped him make the leap to vaccination. He got his shots in June. I think I attended one or two Zoom sessions, but I mainly followed CalPEP's announcements that they put on Facebook. That, that was really the main thing was their advertisements on Facebook. Social media is not one of our strengths as an agency, and that's something that we're working on. And we know that social media works. CalPEP's online and social media efforts, along with outreach on the ground, have made an impact during the pandemic. According to Raina, COVID discussions with clients are now shifting from denial and hesitancy to genuine curiosity. Nowadays, we're seeing people talk amongst each other about the Delta variant and what are other what is a variant? What is in the vaccines? I need to know more about the ingredients. I need to know what is mRNA? What is a spike protein? And those conversations are coming up more often and those questions are being asked not just by one community member, but within their entire social circles. As executive director Lisa Ryan says, there's more work to be done and the CalPEP team remains committed. We've been here since COVID, you know, working hard, and we plan to be here for the recovery. So, Jen, let's start with you at the beginning of this section. Social technology as both community engagement and individual education. How do you see these two approaches working together? Is it a a, a sort of a blurring of the edges or are there very, very specific things that different things that uh, vaccine implementers have to do? What are you hearing from the boost community? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. And and, I mean, also, congratulations to CalPEP for doing such a phenomenal job. I think it's 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 really a, I mean social media allows us the opportunity to adapt in real time, which I think is such a um, you know it's it's an extremely valuable tool because you can do it instantaneously. Very you know there there are, there are not that many initiatives where you're able to be that um, nimble. Um, I think that you know there are in the way that we're working now. I think that there are you know we are seeing within our communities, a lot of folks using WhatsApp and Telegram channels every day, all day. People always use WhatsApp and now are starting to use Telegram. And folks are getting more, um, I've seen even some of our Boost members who have um, several immunization staff on their team using Facebook Live as a way to to reach different folks as well. Um, I think that there's going to be, it's going to be both a blend of getting folks comfortable, figuring out how to use the different tools, but then also figuring out what, um, 
you know, what what do, what does a community need and how can you reach them and what tools are folks comfortable using? Um, but I, I do see that, that, you know, I think the more folks, the more we can help folks appreciate how you could utilize social media to benefit your community, to easily communicate to your community, to get an understanding of also a pulse check of what's going on and what are you feeling? I think um, the, the opportunities will be, will be really great. Heidi, how do we know these interventions work? How do we know that when we, we make these social technologies communicate and reach out uh, and get people to have vaccines, that they're going to let people go back to the doing the things that they love? Well, uh, I think we have to change our metrics, as it were, um, on what we consider success. Um, I often say that for the Confidence Project, our, our KPI is, is trust. Our KPI is not jabs in arms, as they say, but our KPI is trust. And I loved what was said in this little, in the CalPEP um, section when she said, we've been able to move from hesitancy and denial to genuine curiosity. To me, that's a win. Uh, that's a huge win. That means someone's moved from saying, I don't wanna know about it to, oh, really? Let me hear a little bit more. For me, that's success. So I think how we, how we measure this We've got to change that. And that's one thing when it comes to the research and the science and also just our own as, as program managers, as frontline people. If we wait for the day where they totally people totally change their mind, we're going to discourage healthcare workers. They need to be motivated. They need to feel like whatever they're doing is making a difference. So I think if we give more incremental metrics that pull people along, um, I read an article once, uh, it was about, uh, it was in Israel about, you know, two, uh, someone in Gaza Strip and someone from uh, a, a Jewish and, and uh, a Palestinian conversation. And, and it was all about, um, and they said, well, did you agree in the end? And he said, we didn't. But you know what? It was the conversation that mattered. I'll never forget that. And I think we need to, to rethink that. Um, uh, ultimately, we want to see more people vaccinated because that's going to make a public health difference. But we shouldn't exclude that that journey that we're on together. Well, George, you've been deeply involved in that journey. And and, and in fact, you've been uh, one of the experts that have educated and listened to both staff and clients of CalPET by Zoom. What was that experience like? What did you learn? Well, learning learning is the operative word, Ben. Um, uh, I learned that being an expert doesn't count. Um, and that was very important for me. Uh, I think one of my advantages over time was that I realized that I had to tell the community that there were aspects of my life that made me part of their community. Um, and by letting them know that there were things that in, my, that in my life that made me part of their community helped with what Heidi was describing in terms of trust. Um, you know, something Jim, Jim said earlier, I want to go back to because I think it speaks to this. This is a gray space. This is a gray space. We are hearing, excuse me, 
we're hearing the drums of social media, but we don't know what those drums are saying. Um, and we're listening. We have to listen very carefully to those drums because they're giving us a new message and a very important message. Uh, we're now using social media in ways that will make public health a totally different animal. And I think the pandemic is what's really shaping that. It's exciting, right? So, so bottom line for me, and, and, and I'd love your thoughts. What's the top line message you want our audience to take? But for me, it's not just about doing it. It's not just about posting. There's so much stuff, so much content we can find. It's about doing it smartly, getting results. And so what would you want our audiences and our viewers around the world to take just one message from what we've learned from CalPEP? George, do you want to start? Sure. Um, CalPEP took their heart um, and they just added social media to their heart. Um, what Heidi said is most important. This is really about trust. It's not about the science. It's not about getting it done in the next three months. It's not about the next booster. It's really about developing that trust so that over time, we will, people will change the conversation. Um, and that's what it's, we, that's what CalPEP has really done. Jen, your top line message coming out of this. I think it's that, that we, CalPEP did such a beautiful job and continues to do such a great job of listening to the community and to the individuals. And that, um, you know, as as Dr. Wood said, you know, did, that, that being an expert doesn't matter, um, that you have to step back and, and listen. Um, and that one of the most valuable pieces that the, the quote that Heidi just um, reshared around building curiosity is that's the win. Um, and so looking for that space and being comfortable in that space. Heidi? I think the most important thing right now in the COVID moment, as it were, is that COVID will be remembered. Um, and we have a huge opportunity uh, here to start to rebuild that trust and change people's historical memories to one of caring, to one of listening, to one of openness. And if this is the beginning of a different path that we're taking, we can have a huge impact. So finally, on a separate note, social technology looks like it's changed everything. Has there been anything, it doesn't have to be health related at all, anything that has appealed to you this week made you stop and think, oh, now that's interesting. How about you, Jen? Well, I, I was going to share something that I mean, to, I, I follow um, Sheldrick Wildlife Trust on um, on Instagram, and I used to visit there frequently when I lived on and off in Nairobi. And so this this is definitely not related, but um, was watching a, a baby rhino Apollo get a uh, get a bath this week, and it was so adorable, and <laughs> made me feel like I was I was there and connected. So yeah, potentially not completely to your question, but that's the first thing that came to mind of what made me smile. <laughs> it's, all, it's all related. George, how about you? I have been um, captured all week 
watching children ask their stepfathers and stepmothers to adopt them. And it has been, I've been watching it and crying all week. Um, It has been just one of the most moving things that I've ever seen. Fabulous. And how about you, Heidi? Over in the heart of the European Union in Brussels, Oh, you got me there. Um, <laughs> actually, I was thinking about we're we're doing a, a collaboration um, with YouTube, and I was thinking about also with Facebook, but it's a a tri- a triaging, <laughs> so a triangulation, I should say. Um, and I was thinking about what you said at the beginning about emotional intelligence, and one of the things about images and video. Um, is that it's much more emotive. And with that, it, it's really powerful. And we're doing, we've we're launched recently, you can Google it, get back to what you love. And we're trying to, you know, when, when airplanes are selling, um, uh, promoting their airlines, they don't tell you about the seats necessarily. They tell you about the beach. They tell you about the places you're going to go. They're good, they tell you about where they're going to land and why you should get on board. And we're trying to give this, this image of where are you going to be. And we've got these tiny little clips of a little kid running to his grandma, one grandma talking about what she'd love, and she's talking about going to some, <laughs> some class down at the YMCA that she was missing. And then somebody else, you know, was just dancing with their grandfather and then someone on a Ferris wheel, and these little moments that capture emotions and how powerful these little moments are. We, we need to instill hope right now. Mm. And there are some of them that I really, um, it was so simple and so profound. Well, my moment of the week, and Heidi, I know you're gonna roll your eyes when I say this, um, uh, and, and it is a little moment, um, and it's the fact that the Swedish supergroup ABBA have started releasing their first new material in 40 years, and they're doing it on social media. They won Eurovision in 1974, for God's sake. And to me, it decries the adage that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I thought it was going to be about your dog. (laughs) (laughs) Well, those are two dogs that you absolutely cannot teach anything. (laughs) Well, look, thank you so much. Uh, We'll go back to Sherry to close us out. But thank you so much for all the work you're doing. In our next episode, we'll be going to India to look at how a much larger organization can help make life change for young girls and women as they embrace their health journeys. So thank you all very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Vax Up podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in the show, please check the show notes or visit us on our website at www.vaxuppodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at VaxUp Podcast. And please consider subscribing to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or on your favorite podcast platform. The VaxUp Podcast is produced by Hunuvat and NewsDoc Media. 
Writer and producer is Troy Espera. Graphic design by Michael Jarrett. Narration by Sherry C.B. And the executive producers are Eric Espera and Ben Plumley. Thank you, and see you next time.